And, you know, you're a football coach. Yeah, you're helping them in football, trying to get them to see the bigger picture in football. But at the same time, you're trying, you're also adding those life lessons and trying to lift up these young men. Okay, today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is Glenn Parker. Glenn is a former NFL offensive lineman and is one of a few select players to have played in five Super Bowls. He was initially drafted in the third round of the 1990 NFL Draft by the Buffalo Bills and went on to play for the Kansas City Chiefs and the New York Giants. He became the only offensive lineman in team history to be elected MVP by his teammates, also winning the Ed Block Courage Award from the NFL along the way. He retired after the 2001 season and is now an analyst on the NFL Network's playbook and was the main college football analyst for the CBS College Sports Networks, the AFL on NBC. Parker also has appeared on Fox Sports covering features on NFL Europa and appeared on ESPN's NFL Tonight. He was also one of the main analysts for college football on Versus, NBC Sports, and the Pac-12 Network. He has also called Arizona Cardinals preseason games with Mike Goldberg. After 15 years of broadcast, he transitioned into coaching. He coached at the University of Arizona in 2017 the Arizona Hotshots of the AL in 2018, and he currently serves in the Principal Gifts Office at the University of Arizona Foundation. Glenn and his wife, Casey, have raised four children, three girls and a boy, and all have earned four athletic and academic scholarships to college. All right, Glenn, this is uh, awesome. Thank you for being here. I'm really excited to have you and uh, have a chance to really hear your full journey. Well, thanks. And I hope it's worth uh, worth our time. I'm sure it will be. So talk to me a little bit, you know, before you end up being a Super Bowl NFL player at the highest level and, and the work that you're doing today at, at uh, University of Arizona, which I also attended and have a, a deep love for. So we have a lot in common, but I'd like to go back as we do on this podcast and and really start at the beginning. Talk to me a little bit about kind of your upbringing, where you're from, what your family dynamic was like, um, anything that really jumps out from an early age. Wow. There, I mean, there's a lot there. It's um, I'm the youngest of six children, father, uh, born and raised, born in one shack in Texas, one shack, actually born in the kitchen, which was just, all it was was a curtain drawn across the place. World War II vet, Korea vet, uh, mom, uh, orphaned early by the time she was 16, both of her parents were passed. So I don't know that they had a real good understanding and they did the best they could and provided a great home for me. And when you're the youngest of six, you 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 tend to fight a little bit. You tend to be a little bit of an entertainer in order to cope with the uh, things that are going on around you, because I kind of forget, you know, I, in that birth order, where do you have to be? And there's fights going on, there's things that happen, and you kind of figure out your way. And for me, it was, I kind of stayed hidden because I was so young compared to like my older brothers. And and now that I know a lot more about birth order, I, I can really make a lot of sense of it is that I was in some ways, I went from the youngest child to the oldest male simply because they aged out of the household and, and I moved into the household more. And I know that sounds odd, but when your older brothers are 15, 16 years older than you, that's the dynamic that plays. And I, I was always a good athlete, but I, I, had a, I really struggled through adolescence because my interest stayed. I, I, I always say this about 
men. You know, women look at a guy and they don't understand why he likes certain things. It's because I like everything I liked at 12. I still do. I still love everything I liked at 12. I like some other things now. I've Mm -hmm. gotten a little more sophisticated in some things. But man, if it's a car, if it's a cool game, I'm in. I want to play. That's who I am. And I can't Mm -hmm. help that. And so that going into adolescence and kind of, I, I call it the popcorn theory, you know, and I, I, you know, I've heard that once before and I really, I always liked it is when you do a whole pan of popcorn, not every kernel pops at once. And the way our systems are set up from middle school and high school in sports and in education is they, expect, they have to go to the main group, pop real early and they kind of burn out a whole bunch. They really do well academically and they go off to college. And there's guys like me. I was one of those guys that popped kind of after the thing came off and they had served everybody and I popped out then. So I, I was a little too immature to play sports in high school. Both in, I grew in high school and I eventually got to where I could have played in high school. But my freshman year, sophomore, even in my junior year, I was a pledgy kid. I was not particularly uh, suited for the game of football or any sport for that matter, being yelled at. And I shouldn't say that. I should be being coached. But at that time, I thought being yelled at. Sure, um, you know, yeah. There's a lot of maturing that goes on. And, and I, I had to grow up on my own uh, as that youngest kid, which means my parents were pretty much done with being parents. And God bless mm-hmm. my love. And they gave me everything I could ever ask for as far as a home. I knew I had to make my way through college. There was no money there. Being a little more immature, I was kind of a nerd and a geek. And those things start, ended up, they end up driving you as you mature. Because you have that chip on your shoulder. And I've since really come to grips with it all. I realized it was all me. It was none of my friends. It was none of the exterior things doing this. It was all me. But you, you, you end up thinking, I've got to go to college. I'm going to play football. I'm going to become the toughest guy I can become. And people will see that they misjudged me. When really, they didn't misjudge me. I just didn't show myself. And mm-hmm. uh, so that was kind of, in a nutshell, what happened. Youngest a kid, lost in the shuffle, emotionally and physically a little bit immature in, in high school and middle school and kind of felt out of it, nerdy or however you would call it. You know, I'm a, they make a lot of movies where guys like us are way over here. And, um, and I had to find my way out of it. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. I don't want to just kind of move over that too fast. I mean, I think that is really an important uh, message for people to hear, you know, knowing that you did find your way out of it. But oftentimes, you know, I think kids are told or they take on at least, I'm not good at something, especially as it pertains to certain things. I guess maybe it's everything, but it can be the arts for sure. Oh, I'm not a good artist. Oh, I can't sing. Oh, I'm not good at that sport. Or, oh, I'm not big enough. I'm too fat. I'm too this, I'm too that. You know, it could be math, you know, it could be a subject. I, I'm not, I'm not. And that those are kind of stories that I think kids really, people really attach to and really live into. It sounds to me like despite this, you know, kind of being left, uh, you know, to, to lost in the shuffle a little bit, I think is how you described it, you know, and really not kind of knowing who you were, which most people don't at, at an early age. You were able to find it. You know, talk to me a little bit about how you found it. I mean, you know, what was that like? What, what was the, 
And maybe before you get to how you found it, you know, how hard was it actually in the moment? Emotionally and, and socially, really tough because really good friends. I'd always been a really good athlete, and then all of a sudden I wasn't. And I always loved to read. I've always been really into history. And I, I think it was like my eighth grade year. I think it was probably my eighth grade year. A friend of mine, they got into Dungeons and Dragons. And I was like, okay, this, I don't, the game's fun, but I don't love it. I want to actually hit people for real. And I had happened to see a club that did that. So I kind of, I was not able, and, and I'll say it, it was my own fault. I just wasn't mature enough to go out and play football, but I found this group that accepted everybody. And it was really cool to be included in something with a whole bunch of people that you wouldn't know were so successful. And so I went into this club. It was an enactment club where, you know, you, we, you got an armor and smashed each other about as way better than Dungeons and Dragons. It was just fantasy. This was real. You got to actually hit people and smash them. And in there, you know, what I learned from that is I learned you, you start finding out what you're good at in life. And if you're, if you stop worrying about what you can't do and start worrying about what you can do, it's kind of amazing the growth that happens. And for me, those high school years, because I wasn't physically tall of stature or muscular until later on, I found that I could, I listened pretty well. I learned, I could really read. I found um, how I could communicate with adults because I'd always had to being the youngest. I'd always been around adult conversations. And so um, I didn't, kind of the thing that set me apart from the high school crowd is that I wasn't interested in the high school conversations. I was always interested in the more mature and adult conversations, uh, which kind of sucks because I missed out a lot, obviously. But I look, you know, when I look back at it, because I look at my own kids, I'm like, wow, that would have been fun to do. And but I didn't get a part of that. Mm-hmm. But I found my strength was these conversations I had with adults and learning from, they were able to be mentors and uh, a friend of mine in this group happened to be a district attorney, and he was a really and he was he was actually younger than my older brothers, but he was just really good at talking with me and 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 kind of hearing who I was and mentoring me through this process and and you know he'd have me over for dinners things like that where I could kind of see a whole other light in people. What it did is it taught me so much not only about myself but then to never look at a person and and assume that there's nothing about them that's worthy of being respected. And once mm-hmm. that really opened doors for me as I moved along and mm-hmm. grow that, that really set the stage for, I guess, my emotional maturity. And then my, my junior year, I started getting big and strong. My senior, I got bigger and stronger uh, into my, my first year outside of high school and having to go to college. All of a sudden I had a body that matched kind of my interest and in who I was mentally at that point. But those two things were very off, very different for a long time. Yeah. And and I think, you know, in my own life, and I often, I think this is often true, you know, it's those difficult struggles, those kind of painful experiences that really end up, you know, people say they shape you, they make you who you are. And I think sometimes that's a little bit misleading in that, yes, they do that. But what they really do is they open doors for you because you can see where there are problems that you've dealt with and where you might want to solve those problems. You know, so when I hear you say you kind of get to look at people differently now because you know what might be under there as, you know, maybe you were overlooked at times, that's like a real opening, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when you look at one perspective, there's no one perspective other than maybe on a computer screen that's two-dimensional. But so many things need to be looked at at multiple perspectives. And, and I really found that out by, by what you just said, ha- being, there's the, so there, it's, it's, multi- it's multiple ways. I learned a lot about other people and not taking them for granted and, and finding out what was respecting. There might be this person that the average world might go, what a loser, you know, working at a donut store, he's 32 years old, but you go to his house and he's a world-class instrument maker. Mm-hmm. But in order to make ends meet between building mandolins for rich people, which he gets thousands of dollars for, he likes, he works, he wants a job and he works at a donut store. Mm-hmm. So there's this thing where there's a lot of levels to people we don't always look at because we're not always privy to that. But this really allowed me that. And it allowed me to just understand that, that what you see out of everybody is not necessarily who they are. Mm-hmm. But I realized when they saw me in high school, they didn't know any of this about me back there. So, and I, you know, you're right. I, I was, it was painful. <laughs> I kind of feel, I, for a long time, I held such a chip on my shoulder about my high school experience and things that went on. And I just don't anymore. It's like, you know, I think I, I, I feel like I know who I am. It was an opening to figure out more about myself. Yeah. Well, well, tell me a little bit about the chip on your shoulder. You know, how, how did that uh, kind of serve you or hold you back? You know, I don't know how long that lasted because, you know, it does seem like you, you eventually started to get quite a bit of attention from um, some, you know, really great schools. So, you know, when you had the chip on your shoulder, you know, tell me a little bit more about that. I had the chip on my shoulder till probably 10 years ago or less. Yeah. Well after I re- retired, mm-hmm. you you don't get rid of that that type of thing easily. You know, um, it, it, going through an emotional transformation and physical transformation, and then uh, everything from being a social outcast kind of in high school. Um, and let me make a caveat there: my best friend in the world was the best football player in the state and maybe the country at this time, and we've stayed friends, but nobody else. You know, and mm-hmm. and that emotional trauma or whatever. And I hate to be, I'm not a victim. It was my own doing. It, it was that sticks with you. And you want to prove to people they had you wrong all along. You know, here I was best athlete to worst athlete, social kid to unsocial kid. Um, and it, you know, there's a, other emotional baggage that happens with that, you know, family dynamics, all these things that draw into, or that, that draws from, but what you, what you have to do and kind of that chip that drove me then was to prove people wrong, to prove that I was still a good athlete, that I was smart. And, and, and it's still, I shouldn't even say I've lost. I've lost in a lot of areas in my life, but it still drives me to this day sometimes. It, it gives you a fuel when things get a little dark. Maybe you're not doing as well as you think. Say, no, I know I can do this. I'm good at this. And I'm going to prove X wrong. Or I'm gonna, and, and it's not healthy. It really isn't, but it does in some ways you can manifest it for a healthy way. And that's what I did with football for me was to manifest it in that way. Yeah. Well, I think this is an interesting subject just to spend a little bit more time on because I think you kind of said a lot there relative to this chip, you know, that that you got rid of it and then you, you know, kind of maybe rephrase that, that, you know, you never really get rid of it. You got rid of it in a lot of areas. <laughs> and, and I, right. And, and I think this is very true. This is kind of the human experience. And I think there's a level of awareness that really comes in and, and maybe continues to come in to see where it still might be there. And I'm also really intrigued with the idea 
that sometimes, and I, I guess my belief is really, it's always there for our benefit. And there is a, it is serving you really, even if it wasn't going to serve you forever. It was, it was kind of what you needed to do at the time. It was just where you were at the time and it wasn't wrong or bad. And, you know, I guess, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, well, there's no way that that chip on, on your shoulder didn't take you at least in part to five Super Bowls, right? It, it did. Absolutely. Right. And so not all bad, right? But but the the, the, no. the secret is like, how do you figure out when it's serving you and when it's not? That is a battle to this day. And that's a great point. Thank you. Because you you I can look back and go, that served me well in football and in locker rooms. It served me well in broadcast. That edge to always want to do better and prove people wrong. It but it can manifest itself in ways that are damaging to me in that when I'm in a conversation and I refuse to let something go simply because, because I know in the back of my mind, I'm right. And I'm going to get, get them to believe I'm right. I don't have to get them to believe I'm right. And I have to look at it that way. I have to become more aware of when it's not serving me for the purpose or for a good purpose, it's serving me at the detriment of what others might think of me and, or my personal um, angst that goes on inside. I can get rid of that. Say, I don't have to win this. One. I can mm-hmm. let this one go. And mm-hmm. that is where I need to get better. I'm trying. I compared to 15 years ago, way ahead of the game, but right. it's still there. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and I appreciate you acknowledging that because I think it's very honest. I mean, I think this is a life's work. You know, these are these are things that you know we may never really master, but we're constantly working on them. Working A work in progress is, is kind of how I've phrased that. Uh, let's, okay, so, so you're, you're, you know, kind of coming through and, and using this experience now and your, your physical, your physical is catching up, I guess, you know, now and, and you start to get some attention and, 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 you know, decide, you know, that you want to play college football and you can Right. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, working as a bouncer, being a big kid, surfing, all the things that make you an athlete, I was doing. And I was playing basketball against NBA guys. And at some point, you realize this is not the way to get to college. And, you know, there was no money for college for me, as I stated the prior. But so, how was I going to get from junior college, which was somewhat affordable, but very hard to do while bouncing? to college, which is, I, w- I, I couldn't have worked my way through college. It would have taken me 12 years. I had, luckily at that time, I had a friend say he was going to go out for football. And I think he wanted me there because he thought he'd be way better than me. I'd be the last guy on the roster. And I had a friend playing at Stanford who heard me and we were talked about it. He said, you should do it. And I had some NFL, the, uh, the Rams used to come around where I played basketball, where I worked all the time. And they saw me and said, why aren't you doing something? And when, you, when somebody of that magnitude, who's a professional, and somebody who's playing at Stanford says, you need to do this, you start to think, okay, I'm not just playing at the courts against guys. I actually am as good as I think I am, or, I, or I'm as athletic as I think I am. So it popped in my head. I, looked at, I, I was looking at uh, Golden Western College, which is where I was going, and I saw guys getting scholarships. And I was like, I, I play basketball. That guy can't move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going to, I don't know, Carroll College, Montana. They're going to, you know, Eastern Oregon. But 
that didn't matter to me. I saw a degree and I looked at the money and the hours of bouncing it would take me to get that degree and thought, this has got to be my ticket. And I walked in and I met the I met the head coach. I said, I, I, want, I think I want to play ball. He had seen me play basketball out there. And he goes, well, good, you're going to be a left tackle. And I'm like, oh, I thought I was going to be a tight end or uh, I wanted to be a DN. He goes, he goes, well, I'm not the head coach. I'm just the O-line coach, but that's what you're going to play. <laughs> so I thought I was talking to the head coach with him being him. And it was, probably, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, <laughs> It was one of those things that it was absolutely perfect. It was a position I knew nothing about. You have to admit you know nothing. You have to immerse yourself in it. You have to be the blank slate. And I had this guy who could be my mentor. And I listened. And one of the strengths that I had identified early in my life was that I could, I could read, I could learn, I could listen. And I shut my mouth. I went into the meeting rooms. I didn't speak any of that language. And I had to learn it quick. And he took his time and taught me the game, the way coaches see it, the way quarterbacks see it, the way professionals see it. And because of that, I was fast-tracked. Mm. Yeah, great. Well, uh, it sure seems like it was the right track. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, things seemed to go well from there. You know, you, you ultimately are drafted in the NFL. So, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of, was it, was it kind of uh, the right track? Was it bumpy? You know, what was it like between, no, you know, no getting through path. college? No path is, 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 I mean, smooth, correct? I mean, that's just the way it goes. You, you're going to have some bumps in the road. It was perfect through JC. Uh, I chose the right place to go. I was, I, like you said, I had a lot of interest from a lot of schools. I knew what I wanted and who I wanted to be around. And so I found that. And getting to the NFL now, all of a sudden, you know, when you, when you walk into the locker room at Arizona, I have to prove myself again. That chips on my shoulder. And now I got to prove to myself that I can play at a big time college and not just at JC. And that happens pretty, pretty quickly. Well, that's the same when you get to that NFL locker room now, except that you're dealing with a lot more pressure, a lot, a very much different crowd of people and a lot more testosterone than even in a college locker room. And it, it, you, it's do or, it's sink or swim and it's a, it's a pool of sharks at all time. So that's where the, that chip on my shoulder comes back into play is that the normal locker room banter that goes on, but in an NFL is much, uh, much more cutting. It's, it's much more trying to get the other guy off his balance so that you might take a job from him or you might, you know, when you're in, in reps, he's thinking about that instead of going against you. And so it's never smooth because you're going to have times where you fail constantly, which I did. And that goes from mm -hmm. the start of football to the, my last game in the NFL. You're going to fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's going to be bumps, but that chip is what drives you that that's not going to be the last thing somebody remembers of me. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's an interesting thing because maybe in certain areas that really is necessary to some degree, maybe athletics, you know, maybe, Business. I mean, this is something I've grappled with. Is my chips have started to fade as well? Like, eh, well, I don't know. Do I do I need that? You know, is that something I need? That edge? You know, and and I've ultimately kind of decided that it doesn't matter if I need it or not. If if uh, that's what's necessary, and I'm not feeling it, then it's just not going to be right. <laughs> um, but there there is some degree, you know, at that level that it might be necessary. I think that it's probably necessary for success 
in any um, large endeavor. I think what happens is if, uh, you know, when I'm talking about personal problems with it, that's one thing. But if I'm, if it's a, like you're saying, if it's a business, if it's work, if it's what you're most concerned with and you don't have it, it's going to be very tough, I think, to succeed at what you're doing. So that's, that's external. Internally is where I think you have to let it go sometimes. I think the external force will tell me when it's necessary. If I care that much, it's going to be there. That chip's going to be there if I care. Mm-hmm. I, need it, I think all of us, and, and more importantly than anything, myself, I know there are times personally I got to let that chip go. That's not doing me any favors right now. And that is the balance I think everybody has to walk. You know, the yin and the yang is, is what's my dry, exterior driving force that gets me where I want to be, but interior, how can I maintain kind of a truth and, and not turn into something I don't want to be? Yep, got it. So, all right, you're now drafted by the Buffalo Bills, uh, I think 1990, right? Yep. You get drafted by the Bills and you're going to the next level. Tell me what what's that like? What's that transition like? What's it like to have arrived uh, in the NFL? Do you do you feel like you've achieved a success, or are you, are you feeling like you still have a lot to prove? Talk to me about now what it's like to be in the NFL. If you're honest, you immediately take stock of everybody around you, and you think, "Am I going to make this team?" And third rounders, you know, they still oh, you're going to make the team, but that's not necessarily true. And and if you're driven, and you have that chip you're going to look. So that is, so it's a whole process. It's that take stock, use your chip. Do I want to start? I'm going to start. And you have to do that every year. That's not something that ever goes away because every year they're bringing in guys to take your, your job. So I, I don't know that I ever felt I made it. That's I guess what I'm trying to say. But what I did know is when I got to that locker room and we're doing mini camps, one thing that I had learned early on from that first coach is I watched footwork. I watched how guys move. Could they move athletically? And I looked at myself. I said, okay. I called my agent. I said, how's, the, how's this schedule, you know, our contract coming? So, well, it depends. What do you think? You know, you, you think you're going to play? I go, yeah, I'm going to play and I hope I start. And he was like, are you sure? Because I'll structure this differently, but I don't do that normally. I said, I'm sure. So he structured it so that I got tons of these bonuses and rollovers and I hit them all, every one of them. And all of that came because way back when I learned that product, you walk in, have that chip, look around, who am I better than? Who do I need to get? Who do I need to catch? You know, and you start doing that right from the get go in an NFL locker room and you can't be intimidated. You got to say, okay. So you start watching film and then you're getting out on the field like, okay, that guy's kind of clumsy. That guy can't remember what the hell the play is. So you start, you start putting yourself in this pecking order right away and figuring out, can I get in that top five? And I knew, I knew before we ever went to camp, I was in the top five. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it, to me, this is like an intelligence thing too, right? Like, is everybody doing it? Or, or is this like you're just using your mind now to kind of analyze the field and see kind of what, what you need to be doing and then strategically doing it? I mean, or, or is that kind of common in, in the locker room? I think it's, I think there's, it's, I think it's a real mixed bag. I think there are guys like me that do that. And I think some, and I think the people who stick around the longest do that. I think there's a lot of guys get there and just they are 
so used to being told they're great and they got drafted, they're in the NFL, they're not thinking of numbers. They're not looking at the total roster numbers, how many breakdown of each position, where they're going to fall. They're not paying attention to the body language of the coaches and the way the coaches use their voice inflection around them or not. Those are all things that I think being the youngest in my household taught me about communication is understanding the nuance in a conversation a lot of times is very important. And Mm -hmm. I was always very good at knowing where I stood within an organization. And that goes on beyond the coaches. It goes on to the language used in the media from the head coach and the GMs. And you start getting a feeling of where you stand on a team pretty quick. And Mm -hmm. I I knew, for instance, seven years later, I knew when I was going to be released. I was a salary cap guy. And one of the coaches bet me good money. I would never be released. He ended up paying. said, how'd you know? I said, the writing was on the wall. Here's, you know, I, I could tell. It's just knowing the way communication words. It's not, it's not a paranoia. It's just being able to put the clues together to figure it out. Okay. Yeah. You know, that's just a unique ability really is what it is. That's not something everybody can do. You can. Okay. So let me ask you. So you go on to the Super Bowl. What, what year is your first Super Bowl? My first year. I went to the Super Bowl. I went to the Super Bowl my first four years in the league. Yeah. Wow. And so what, what's that like? You're four years in a row playing in the Super Bowl. I mean, your rookie year, you know, you're on that stage. How, how, what was that like? First off, I like to say that the reason the Bills went to four straight is they drafted me and I, turned, I started right away. So I was the difference <laughs> in all those teams. Yeah, uh, definitely. That's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, I, you don't realize it until you look back what it was like. When you're there, you're just you're so concerned with getting your job done week to week, not getting cut, not getting beat, mm-hmm. not screwing up. And you get there and now you got this break. And I remember we lost the Super Bowl and I went back to Huntington Beach, California, where I'm from. And I, I sat there just kind of get myself ready. You know, I took a week and just took bike rides and things. I got to get back. I got to go. I had to go back and lift. And, and people were like, why are you going back? I said, I got to make the team. And they're like, but you're, a, you were starting, you're, you're set. You, your mindset, I don't know. I never got to really enjoy that first Super Bowl because I was so concerned with just making the team again. And it felt like that is exactly what happened to all four of them. I look back now, but man, I was a part of four great teams. There's incredible memories. I can remember all the stories and I laugh and me and my buddies will talk about it. But at the time, I was way too busy being scared to death I was going to get cut. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mm-hmm. really think about that until yeah. later in my career. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I think it's kind of a good look into the realities of it, you know, because I think as a fan, right, and that never being anywhere near close to that experience, you know, I'm thinking about the stage, the limelight, the theatrics, the you know, kind of intensity, the big goal of trying to win a championship and the fun of it, you know, Super right. Bowl week, right? All the things leading up to it. But the truth is, is like, that was your job. And you were worried, you know, week to week, year to year, if you were going to have your job. And, right. and you know, I mean, I think that's probably way more common. You know, it's it's not as talked about as much because, the people that are really uh, front and center are guys that aren't really that worried about losing their jobs, right? Uh, there's a lot of guys in on that roster that are like you that were just thinking, and you're, you know, you're you're starting, you know, you're you're playing, but you know, you're still worried about it. 
But I could I could take a picture off my wall that was taken in September of the Buffalo Bills of that year. And I could show you our Super Bowl photo. And there are about half the guys gone from that first photo. And they're replaced by a new bunch of guys. That is the reality of NFL. Everybody likes mm-hmm. to say, you know, guys average this long. Well, of course, the superstars, the people last a long time that you know. If you take out guys like me that last more than 10 years, the average career is less than a year. Um, mm-hmm. Guys don't get on the roster long. They're there for a few games and they're gone. And mm-hmm. that turnover is so strong. It plays in, it played in my head in a big way early in my career. Later on, you realize it's what it is and away you go. So, yeah. but I can say this. I remember those Super Bowls. I remember the stage and it was absolutely fantastic. To be sitting on the sideline while Whitney Houston is singing the Star mm-hmm. Spangled Banner is amazing. Mm-hmm. To come out of the tunnel and, and, I, you know, Michael Jackson's playing the, the halftime. Like, wow, you know, <laughs> oh, look at there. That's quite the show or whatever it is. Right, you know? right, right. But it's, you're so caught up in, I got that guy and I got this play. And I, in, and I look back and it's the greatest experience of my life. And I still remember the plays. I remember the games. But at the time, you're too busy thinking about the next play and the next thing to even get caught up in those, those emotions. You've got to just go. You're just going as hard as you can. As, as you can tunnel vision to win a game. Yeah. And, and I know that there's some accolades that, that come your way along the way. You know, you are named MVP uh, by your teammates, the only uh, offensive lineman in team history to, to be named MVP, uh, the Ed Block Courage Award from the NFL. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you were recognized um, in a really unique way, talk to me a little bit about why you think that was. What was it about you that really became, you know, from this boy who maybe was in the outside looking in to a real leader uh, in your locker room and in the league? Tell me about that. Well, as an offensive lineman, you're, you're, it's service leadership. You're not a in front and center leadership. You're a guy that does. And offensive linemen by nature, we're pretty unselfish. We're all about five guys. And the five guys have to work as one in order to make anything happen. And selfishness can creep in in the NFL because you're keeping your job. It's all about your job. So what ended up happening that year, because I had played multiple positions throughout my career, I played left tackle and I played right guard and right tackle. I was the starting tackle, but the, and they had drafted a tackle that was supposed to be a left tackle for us. And during the season, we lost a left guard. And he went down. We really didn't have a backup for him. And so what ended up happening is I looked and I knew that the guy they drafted couldn't play left tackle, but he could probably play right tackle. So I went to the coach and said, listen, you know, why don't, why don't I move the left guard, bring him in at tackle because he can't play guard. And he, we did it for a week or two. It wasn't working out. So we flipped. Well, then in the middle of the season, left tackle goes down. So I moved out to left tackle because I was the only person with tackle experience. And, and I played a lot of tackle. And the reason they, they voted that, I guess, is because I had to do it multiple games during games, and I did it without worrying about my career. I wasn't worried that, I no, no, I'm a left tackle, or I'm a right tackle, I'm not moving, that's my job. And, you know, you look back after 12 years, you go, did it cost me? No, I played 12 years. Probably cost me a little money here and there where I could have stayed in one job. But what it, what it, what it gained for me was, you know, the respect of my teammates. The respect of, of, you know, when I say the thing about being voted MVP is you're not, not voted MVP by the press. It's not by the fans. It was my teammates who did that. They thought I was the most yeah. valuable player that year on that 
squad. And we were a really good Chiefs team. And so I I felt great about that. That was a, a better payday than anything I could have gotten. Yeah, th- th- those are the best kind of compliments, the ones that really come from your peers that are seeing you every day and and recognize you. So, you know, says a lot about you. And and, and I have to ask, you know, because I, I believe just in, you know, having spoken to you today and hearing kind of your story and your journey and knowing how you continue to succeed in new diff- new and different ways, that that there was a silver lining to the uh, Super Bowl losses, um, you know, that, that, you know, obviously a win is a win, a championship is a championship, a ring is a ring. But, you know, I, I'm wondering how you see the silver linings in the losses and what that really has maybe um, given you maybe more even than what a championship would have. Well, that's really good. I, you know, that, so, not just last week, someone was asking me, God, that just sucks to lose five Super Bowls. You know, I lost four with the Bills and one with the Giants. I go, no, are you kidding me? It was, it was, I don't want to bring it up to make you mad. I said, you don't make me mad. You make me really happy. And he says, why? I said, I was a part of five great teams, five teams full of great people, great memories um, that, that worked together at the highest level for the highest goal, and we came one game short. Everybody in the NFL, loses the Super Bowl except the winner of the Super Bowl. All 31 teams. And yet I got to be that that number two team five times. Yeah, I never won it. But that's not what I take away. I take away those five great squads, great guys, great memories. That's the silver lining is that I, I can, every year I can look and go, hey, I was better than most of the NFL. And I can look at a lot of my my teammates later on in my career that never got to a Super Bowl. Think of the great players that never got to play in one. I played in five. And right. if you ask me tomorrow, hey, we're going to give you one rep and you're going to play in a Super Bowl, but you only got about a 1% chance or less of winning, I'm in. Give yeah. it to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's really like a much more um, healthy, obviously, but it's it's really just true. You know, I mean the amount of the rare air that you're in to get there once to play in the NFL at all, to get there two times, three times, five times is unbelievably rare air. And you can't say anything, but, you know, in my mind, look how much success, look what I have accomplished. I mean, you know, and, and I know that most people or many, at least a lot, wouldn't look at it that way. They'd say, oh, I lost. But I mean, you know, I just think it's true for you to process it the way you are, much healthier. And, and you know, really, I think, um, you know, that's how life is. You get to choose. What, how am I going to frame this up? You know, how am I going to, there's not one truth. The, the truth is for you to decide. And, and in this case, you decided that it was it was a hell of an experience, one that most people never got to have, and it was a great thing. It, all of life, and you just said it best, and, and the way I say it, all of, all of life is, is an event and how we respond to it, and that gives us the outcome we want. That's just yeah. life. That's Jack Canfield in a, in a nutshell right there is, yeah. you know, hey, this event happened, and how I respond to it is going to be my outcome. And I, I could respond, this is the worst thing that ever happened, and instead I would then be a bitter ex-football player 
who that that can't see the good I was able to to be a part of. And I, I don't choose to do that, you know. And you know, they say nobody remembers second place. And I said, well, funny. If I asked who was the quarterback of those Bills teams, even non-football fans, a lot of them know Jim Kelly, right? Mm-hmm. And but if I asked who was the quarterback in the '95 Super Bowl, the next one, most people mm-hmm. lost. Most people couldn't <laughs> name it. So, hey, there's the silver lining. We're at least mm-hmm. famous. People know us. We're the Bills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, I, I grew up watching those teams. You know, those were memorable years. And it was really a, a kind of special time that the Bills were in it every year and losing. And, and you know, um, it wasn't just that they were losing. That became the story. But until that became the story, it was like, this Bills team is special. You know, I mean, they're right there every year. If you think about it today, I mean, you know, that that is really unique to go to the Super Bowl four years in a row. Yeah, and that, um, it's when you, you just said it best back at the time, it became that joke. But in the through the fog of time now and through a longer lens, we realize how incredibly special it was for a team to get there four years in a row. And will it ever be accomplished again? Probably not. What was Marv Levy like as a, as a coach? Uh, Marv was special, and I yeah. don't think you'll find anybody that played for Marv didn't think that. And you know, it, to me, you know, everybody can name one thing they loved about Marv: his sense of humor, or this or that. But in my mind, what made him special were two qualities: he let his coaches coach. He didn't get in there and try to tell people how to coach, but he had a way of communicating through one sentence something that meant something really deep to one player, and that maybe this player at least understood. You know, you're dealing with 53 different personalities on a team, three, 30, 53 different levels of, of education and intelligence. And he could take a sentence and it could mean multiple things within the same vein to, to the, everybody on the team. And that, that was a really incredible way he had of communicating. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, that by itself, a hell of experience. I mean, he was just so well respected and, you know, really loved and and to be able to learn from him. Glenn, talk to me a little bit about your, your back at your alma mater uh, in, in Tucson, place that, that I spent some time and loved dearly. And just I uh, see you wearing the shirt. I know you take a lot of pride. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing now and kind of how all of this uh, life experience has really led you to today? Well, I, you know, I did broadcast for a lot of years and, and I loved it. But my children, my two youngest were playing sports that are fall sports. And when you're doing football on TV, you're going to miss all of that. And so I felt like, okay, now's the time to make a change. And they had come to me and kind of given me this opportunity. They wanted help in, with alumni relations and fundraising. and and. I had never done anything like that before. Um, fundraising, you know, alumni relations is easy. I love to meet people and hear their stories. And so that's been the real easy part. And, but what it also allowed me to do is time to coach. And when I retired, I didn't want to coach. I was asked to coach by one of the teams that I had been on uh, in the NFL. And I just knew I, I wanted to be around my children. I didn't want to be an absent dad. And I learned through raising four children how different people learn. and and. Not everybody learns the same way. And that led me into coaching. And so it was really a nice opportunity for me to work at the university and, and be around alumni relations, go travel, meet our alumni and hear their stories. But it also gave me time on the side to coach and be around young men and, and 
try to try to help them through life. And, you know, you're a football coach. Yeah, you're helping them in football, trying to get them to see the bigger picture in football. But at the same time, you're trying that you're also adding those life lessons and trying to lift up these young men. Um, and, you know, Tucson's a mixed bag as far as socioeconomics. And so we have some kids from broken homes and some kids from very rough backgrounds and, and trying to get them into the fold and have them become part of a team and care about the team and have a, ha, just trying to help them become a, a, a good young man in society. And I just, I, I really, I took to trying to lift up those kids and, and be something better for them. Yeah, that's great. Great work. Well, you know, I'm glad you're doing it where you're doing it and finding the the balance between, you know, being a, a father and a, a husband and, and supporting so many young people using this experience really to give back to other people is, is really kind of the ultimate uh, fulfilling uh, work for me. I know I happen to get more pleasure now out of supporting other people, coaching other people, really, you know, kind of investing in them. Um, maybe, you know, just as much as I do kind of my own endeavors, it's, it's uh, really fulfilling work. So, you know, um, awesome. Yeah. Well, I was just gonna say what you just said there is something I, I, I live by is when you're, we always want to be the hero in our own story, but if you know that track, right, you, you're a hero because you have a mentor and then you reach your goal and it's your turn to be the mentor to the next hero. And yeah, um, I'm done being a hero, man. I want, I just want to be a mentor and help these kids. So. That's great. Well, Glenn, any uh, final thoughts, anything you want to wrap up with as we come to a close here? I've really enjoyed talking with you and hearing your story and um, anything you want to kind of share with the audience in closing. No, you know, I, I really don't. Thank you. You know, I would say this, and this is just goes to my time in the league, but just as a human, it's one of my favorite quotes about life is don't be a tourist in life, uh, be a traveler. Tourists see what they came to see and travelers kind of pay attention to everything around them. Mm, that's wonderful. Good, good final thoughts. Glenn, thanks again. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. I really enjoyed it as well. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.